Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. We've been working our way through War and Peace, and we're so, so close, my friends. And I confess myself, peeved. Peeved is not too, it's too strong, not strong enough. A word, peeved. Dismayed, (laughs) furious, horrified, distracted with sorrow, I think is the way that I would put it. I have a confession to make. I flipped through the next couple of pages of the final part of War and Peace, and dear friends, I am sorry to report, you have seen the last of your favorite characters. It will not be mentioned again. Tolstoy is going to end his work by going back into his philosophy of history once again. Discuss. <laughs> I just I can't believe it. I Really? Nikolenka? That's the last character that we hear from? I'm losing my mind. That's so <laughs> annoying. <laughs> I am so annoyed. Kid. I mean, as Ian and I were talking about earlier, I it makes like it would be fine. Like there are thematic reasons to end where he did with this part, but like maybe he should have just ended and with just this freaking part. ended it there, dude. A dude. <laughs> Do we need more of the philosophy of history? Like, I'm serious. I'm serious. This is 1,295 pages long in this edition. Like. This could have been a tight 650 pages. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. It's, I, it is it's, getting ridiculous. I just can't imagine what other analogies is he going to use? What other things can he possibly allude to to say the same thing again? <laughs> ah. Over and over again. Okay. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. Well, okay. <sighs> if this is going to be the last that we see of our characters, you guys, no pressure. This is the last we get to talk about them. Right. I know. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, we have to say goodbye to everyone We're going to say goodbye to literally everybody. But I just have to say that there was a passage that I particularly appreciated. Uh, I can't wait <laughs> to see if it's the one I think it is. <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it is. It is when Pierre is talking to Nikolai in the study. And it said, Pierre demonstrated the contrary. And as his mental powers were stronger and more resourceful, Nikolai felt himself up against the wall. This made him still angrier, since in his heart, not by reasoning, but by something stronger than reasoning, <laughs> he knew the unquestionable rightness of his opinion. And I would <laughs> just like you all ever. to know, this is what it's like to argue with an Andrews. <laughs> oh, you mean that you're, you your are intellectual smarter than powers? me, but I feel that I'm right. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know about smarter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. my word! Well, that's not the scene that I thought you were talking about. I just oh, thought really? the little phrase "Pierre is an excellent nanny." He says his hand was just made to fit oh a baby's gosh. bottom. <laughs> yeah, and something else. And then the response is not just a baby's bottom. Oh, I mean, so 
glorious. That is totally glorious. Raunchy Pierre. Right. We're we're assuming that Pierre's being raunchy here, right? I think he is. At least in the English, it comes across as a pretty sweet double entendre. Oh my gosh. Mm, so funny. Okay, so have we vented our spleen thoroughly enough? Because I really do want to spend some time talking about this. This is a glorious, glorious set of chapters. We get a picture of the home life well, at the Rostov Castle. We shouldn't waste any moment of the last you know, the last chapters with them. So let's get right to let's it. Let's get right to it. So Pierre has been away, right? He's been in Petersburg um, doing his intellectual ruminatings and political wranglings that Natasha, I love the way that Natasha's attitude towards this is described. Because she loves Pierre and she understands his heart all the way down to the bottom, she does not question the importance of any of the things that obsess him. She also doesn't understand them and doesn't care to. Like, it, we're not given the impression that she's too stupid to join him in these conversations. It's just that she just could, could not care any less. She does not care. And I love, not to fast forward too far, but when we get these little, this the pictures of their marriages as they go to their bedrooms after the evening is over, we get another, uh, another picture of Pierre and Natasha relating to each other. And more or less, they're both completely free to carry their own concerns assume that the other person gets them all the way down to the bottom and just talk at each other the whole time. <laughs> and I think it's beautiful. And it's just a great picture of what a healthy marriage looks like. It's super interesting because they're all uh, unraveling and kind of returning back to their state of nature. Hmm. And you're right for Natasha. That's like, she understands Pierre's heart. There's a passage where it says, Pierre is talking about his ideas and she says, I don't understand. It's so simple. I already understand it. I don't know why they're talking about this because she like emotes and like, I, because I think it says that she understands Pierre and so she understands his ideas and they're simple to her. Right. It's all part of Pierre's whole soul. Yep. Is the right. And, and yeah. he, the, the implication is that it isn't the idea. It's the man that she right. trusts. Right? Well, that's. And so here at the beginning in chapter 11, where we started while he's away and she's kind of fuming that he's away in Petersburg talking to this Prince Fyodor uh, she says, it's all foolishness, all trifles. She said, all his reflections, which don't lead to anything and all these stupid societies. She said of the very things and the great importance of which she firmly believed. But that contradiction seems important because what's basically happened in this section is even though Pierre has spent a whole 1,200 pages trying to make something of himself in the realm of politics, in the realm of virtue, in the realm of you name it. Right. He's gone back to that. And the stupid societies is exactly what he learned weren't important in the first place. And yet he's convinced everyone that they're important again. And like Natasha at her bottom in her heart seems to know that they're not important. But Pierre is important to her. Right. But I think that she's right to be frustrated that he's been gone for seven weeks. Oh my goodness! Yeah, for all I wanna, these foolish trifles. I want to read that part because the section opens with her suffering, right? Because her, she, the, they, we get a scene where he's he gets the letter requesting that he come to Petersburg, and and she gives him permission to go and says, "The only thing I ask is that you you decide how long <laughs> you decide how long you're going to be gone." And so you, you're granted leave like a military unit. You are granted <laughs> yeah, leave for four leave weeks. Like a general. Right. And then he's gone for seven. She's the little Cossack and again. She's yeah. so mad. Oh, she's just absolutely furious. And I love this part. She, she, he arrives home and she's completely transported by happiness. She's so excited that he's home. She forgets for just a second how mad she is at him. <laughs> and then she, she flies to him and it says, 
It's him, really, here he is, she said to herself, and flying to him, she embraced him, pressed his head to her breast, and then, pushing it away, looked at the frosty, red-cheeked, and happy face of Pierre. Yes, it's him. Happy, content. And suddenly, (laughs) she remembered all the torments of waiting that she had felt over the last two weeks. The joy shining on her face vanished. She frowned, and a stream of reproaches and angry words poured out at Pierre. Yes, it's fine for you. You're very glad. You had a good time. But what about me? You might at least feel sorry for the children. I'm nursing. My milk looked bad. Pentia almost died. And you're having a very good time. Yes, a good time. And this is per- uh, this editorializing from Tolstoy is, is a, a summary so of what he's so good at and why his novels are brilliant. Pierre knew he was not guilty because he could not have come sooner. He knew that this outburst was improper on her part and knew that in two minutes it would pass. He knew above all that he himself was cheerful and happy. He would have liked to smile, but did not even dare to think of it. He made a pitiful, frightened face and cowered. I couldn't, by God. But how's Petya? I mean, like, the transition from the world of his his own personal concerns back into family life is just perfect. Tolstoy had a wife. He must have. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, are we supposed to believe uh, Pierre, when he says he couldn't have gotten away and his business was so important that he was required to stay, or are we supposed to be on Natasha's side that the family concerns are really where the significance of life is, and Pierre is off pretending he's the center of the universe and not not conquering the silliness that's always been a part of oh, him? Oh man, that's a really good where question. Where are we, the audience, supposed to stand? Because it does seem like in these passages in the background, outside of the family relationships, Pierre is the same that he has always been. Right. There is a political misconception that he is at the heart of things. And that his he says at one point, his presence is required to hold all things together. Right. And he believes that very firmly. Natasha doesn't. But at the same time, his presence is required to hold all things together here at home. I mean, the heart of the home is restored when Pierre gets back. So and she is that's that kind heart. of an interesting dichotomy. I think that's really in the meat of this section i think you've put your finger on it that there's a tension between pierre regressing and all of them really nikolai natasha even regressing to some state from before they learned the climactic lessons of this story Mm. and yet still what they have that they didn't have before is this family life yeah i agree with you guys i do think that's the heart of it it's the question is well put I, what I would suggest is that he's saying both and because one of the things he's been trying to tell us all along is that you cannot be but what you are, right? You are a human being and all of your efforts to to change yourself or to hasten a, a realization of your true state are in vain, right? The, the truth of your being comes to you from outside in moments of revelation that you cannot um, hustle along. And so I, I think he gives his blessing to both spheres in this, in this area. And part of what's going on, I think, is that he, and we made this comment on a different show about war and peace. He's the main characters of these stories are, are, are men, which is confusing because he's so good at writing women. I've heard from, from Anna Karenina, but I think in war and peace, the, the male players have received, I mean, almost all of the screen time. I mean, we've, we've bewailed the fact that Natasha is not more present throughout the story. But I think I think the women in the story do serve as the heart. They serve as the heart of the home and also the heart of the country. And there's a sense in which he's discussing male and female roles 
And what we see here is a, is a picture of Tolstoy's idea of how that is supposed to go. We've got men who are, even if it is silly, and he does think it's silly, who are unavoidably concerned with the fate of the nation, who are unavoidably drawn into stewarding not just their own households, but also the whole of society. And the women whose role is to remind them as the family goes, so does the society. And that those are actually appropriate roles. And the tension is not a negative tension. It's a, it's a normal human tension that's always going to be present. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think about that? I think that's right. And it, I actually had a lot of compassion for Tolstoy in this section because I think that we get his most self-aware portrayal of himself <laughs> in this oh, section. Yeah. I see that. Uh, it's actually at the end, I, we're kind of jumping all around, but when Pierre is talking to Natasha alone, we're told that it seemed to him, Pierre, at that moment that he was called upon to give a new direction to the whole of Russian society and the whole world. I was going to say only that all thoughts that have great consequences are always simple. My whole thought is that since vicious people band together and constitute a force, honest people need only do the same. It's that simple. Right. And can't you hear Tolstoy like mocking himself in that when Pierre says, I was only going to say that all thoughts that have great consequences are just so simple. <laughs> I'm going to say something that's going to change the whole world and all of Russian society. Yeah. I, I just hear Tolstoy being so self-aware of himself here at the end of his story and what he's done. And in the moment when Natasha asks Pierre, would Platon agree with you about your political stance? Like, I think that is, that's the takeaway of War and Peace. When Pierre says, yeah, I think so. And then says, um, no, he wouldn't agree with me. What he would like is my family life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or he doesn't say it quite that starkly. He mostly says what I would be proud to show him is my family life, which is telling and and totally beautiful. But I also, not to beat a dead horse, but I also think that this is something that I see even in some of my own conversations these days. I mean, there's been some in here in America in the last couple of years, there's been some political upheaval and 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 i've seen a lot of the of the other men in my orbit respond differently to to how to prepare for that kind of thing and there is a a common denominator which is something must be done we have to do something but when you look back into the historical record that's almost never how it goes I mean, really what there is to do is believe and endure and it's a part of of a man that he tries to take action and there's nothing we can really do about that And I think you're right, Emily, that what Tolstoy is advocating is some self-awareness as we go along doing what all men are going to do. And I Mm -hmm. think he's doing the same thing, actually, in his characterization of Natasha and Princess Maria. They are doing themselves to the very fullest. And family life is what frees them to do that. And their foibles are not gone. They're just baptized by by taking place in the safe confines of of family life. Natasha is is eminently herself and so is Princess Maria. And so I think what he's doing is saying thus goes humanity, isn't it great? Right? And I think that's really good stuff and comforting stuff actually. Megan you're chewing. What do you think? Well, I just like to think of those two women as eminently themselves but their foibles being baptized. I think that's beautiful. I'm thinking of two separate scenes. The one where Natasha is nursing her baby 
and finds such comfort in, in the relationship between her and her baby in that moment and, and how personal it feels. She's every bit as emotional and of the moment as she was as a little girl. You know, the, the passionate, tender physicality of her character that we've always noticed is so beautiful in a little maternal scene like mm. that, you know? She doesn't have any perspective outside the moment, but the moment is so vivid. That and she alive. makes her baby sick. And it's, <laughs> she, yeah. it's so vivid and alive that she makes the baby sick. It's excessive <laughs> in the same Natasha way. Exactly. You know? And in a similar sense, that scene that we get of Princess Maria writing about her children in, in a journal, a journal of her children's lives is so um, over the top. Well, so Maria. Nikolai says pedantic. <laughs> right. Yeah. He says this is pedantic and might not even be necessary. <laughs> But I love you for it. There is actually something in this intentionality and this um, thoughtfulness. And I don't know, there is a there is a spiritual beauty to the way that she's considering the moral character of her children yeah. and trying to help them along and learning how to be good people. And that actually we are supposed to admire, even though we see how silly. Natasha makes her baby sick and Princess Maria is a little pedantic. <laughs> we see those things clearly. And yet they're also baptized. Lovely. They belong, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think that's true. And one of the things I think running along the uh, the underbelly of this whole story is that he's saying, hey, you guys, man is a spiritual thing. The human race is a spiritual thing. And so all of our goings are spiritual goings, whether we're aware of it or not. And this is a beautiful picture of, like you said, the baptism of all of our impulses. They're natural ones. And because we're spiritual beings, they're spiritual ones. And they're all immoderate. Because we live in a fallen world, but nevertheless, they're beautiful. And, and if we sink into them and are aware of ourselves as we experience them, there's a lot of contentment and peace to be found. I love that Denisov is just here, taking it in, <laughs> being a witness. <laughs> Having beef with Pierre because he married Natasha. <laughs> yeah, for whom he had no great love. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Also, speaking of like side characters, are we worried that Nikolenka, Andre's little boy, is being set up in a situation just like Sonia? He's the cousin who's like not really a part of the family and doesn't really have anyone and is just watching everyone. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of the comparison to Sonia. It felt very much to me like he was a ghost of Andre a little mm -hmm. bit. And I felt badly for him where that's concerned that for literary reasons or otherwise, he's a foil to the rest of the family and a hearkening back to the rationality and morose spirit of Andre here in this scene. And that made me sad for him because there's there's no father who identifies with him and says, oh, you're like me, the way that, you know, little Petya is like Pierre and uh, Nikolai has a son of his own and Nikolinka's is very much on his own and needs his father. And that's where we leave the end of the story. It's like a, I don't know, the lack of a family for him is really sad. Well, yeah, I do think that that's really significant that that's the end because it kind of sets up a cycle for this all to begin again. He, he's mm -hmm. Tolstoy seems to be saying, yes, these are important truths, but every generation has to learn them from themselves. Right. We're and all so it goes, to, he says. Yeah. Don't you think it harkens back to the very beginning of War and Peace when Pierre Bezhukov loses his father and he kind of starts his own journey as a young man, fatherless. I love that. And 
here we have Nikolinka, whose greatest idol in the world is Uncle Pierre, who's not really his father. And he has dreams about the spirit of his father coming to, to affirm him. But when he wakes up, they're not true, you mm. know? Mm. But what we have that we didn't have before, I mean, which we did, but we see it more clearly now maybe, is that there's an intermingling of threads that, yes, Nikolinka doesn't have a father, but you're right, he does have Pierre. And Pierre is aware of him. And he, like... He looks up to Pierre in a way that maybe even Andre didn't. Like Andre was just starting down the road of his Seeing conversations. Pierre. Yeah, like they constantly checked in with conversations and they were just starting to influence each other. But now like Pierre has this influence on his son. And so while Nikolinka says things at the end of this novel that are very much in keeping with his father's own attitude, I'm going to go win glory and they will love me and admire me. He does have Pierre there with him. And Pierre's going down his own journey. That might not be so great. But what Nikolinka wants is to be a kind and intelligent man like Uncle Pierre. And that's yeah, influence. I I agree with that. I see the I see the the loneliness and I see the the concerns you guys have for Nikolinka. But I also think that um well, and this is kind of a, a pun maybe, but the heart of this passage is the one describing how Pierre is the heart of every gathering. Right. There's a there's a list of the people and how they respond to Pierre coming home. And it that list ends on and dwells on Nikolenka in, in a longer passage than all of the other ones. And I think that's really that's really beautiful. He's so 15. I mean, he's so <laughs> unbelievably 15. The boy who was only beginning to suspect about love put together the notion that his father had loved Natasha and had bequeathed her <laughs> upon dying to his friend. This father had given her like a baggage. <laughs> this father, whom the boy did not remember, appeared to him as a deity whom it was impossible to imagine and of whom he did not think otherwise than with a thrill in his heart and tears of sadness and rapture. And the boy was happy on account of Pierre's coming. Right. That there's such a connection of those two things. His imagination of his father, but the, the very real impact of the father that fate has given him, which is Pierre. Mm -hmm. So there's a hope maybe in my mind, there's actually hope for Nikolenka because, because what Andre needed, and we talked about it over and over again, what Andre needed was Pierre. A healthy dose of Pierre's optimism. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. He needed a healthy dose of Pierre's optimism to drag him away from his morose self. And maybe his son will get that from Pierre. It certainly seems as though he is getting it from Pierre. Because what, and I, I, it's just becoming more clear as I talk about it. One of the things that's also true of of the story is is Pierre's highfalutin intellectual I'm the center of the worldness though different in flavor from Andre's has the same eventual result which is that humanity steals it away when he's in the presence of his wife and of his children he's a father and a husband and that just is what it is and it does what it does to you and so I don't know we, we maybe we know too much having studied Tolstoy and and knowing what he intended to do with this story, which is right about the Decemberist revolts. We know too much about where Pierre is going, but I think if we confine ourselves to this novel, we get a pretty healthy, healthy picture of humanity in this last section, where Pierre is, though he has this intellectual life that may lead him to think some things that have been disproven uh, earlier in the novel, it's all, it's all going to be okay, because he has a family, and that's the important mm -hmm. part. Yeah, you said Pierre is the heart of the home, and you're right, but I thought it was interesting that really it actually goes back to Natasha again. We've always said Natasha is the yeah. heart of the novel, mm -hmm. and what everyone loves about Pierre coming home is that he brings them presents. Yeah. But that wasn't, we find out that wasn't his idea. No, it was Natasha's. It's Natasha's <laughs> idea, and he comes to find joy in doing it, but he 100% would not 
think to do that on his own. <laughs> well, and it goes one step further. There's that list that Ian was mentioning of how Pierre's coming influences or affects each member of this vast household. And it says the old ladies were glad of the presence he would be bringing and above all that Natasha would come to life yep. again. So you're absolutely right that Natasha's coming back to life is the the vivifying of the house, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And those are all things that Natasha learned in her turn from her father and from her family. And her mother is there now and is an empty shell of herself, but is a reminder that all the purposes that everyone is talking about in the drawing room, they all come to naught. And at the end, we're just, it's a little, it's a little bleak the way he describes it. We're just moved around by our life forces. Yeah. On the other hand, I, all this talk about people reverting is is true, but maybe overly negatively put. Because the other thing that's happening is family foibles are being vanquished hmm. by health, more or less, right? Nikolai, for example, is um, not his father. He resembles his father in some good ways, but the progress of his life and of his marriage with Princess Maria and all of that has caused him to become financially responsible. And he's now taking care of his children and putting them in a better place than he himself was. And um, that all represents generational growth in his family's identity. The same thing is true of Pierre, right? Previously, all of his wealth was for, and what's the way he puts it? That most expensive luxury, which is the kind of life that can be changed at any moment. Instead, what's happening because of his marriage to Natasha is life is cheap because it's regular, because there is rhythm and sameness. And so... Even though having a family is expensive, it's less expensive than it was to be single because he's now attached to responsibility. So I, I think there is growth. There's growth all the, all the way across the board. It's interesting, though, because it's also it's growth, but it's also like a pendulum swinging. Nikolai has thrown himself into business to a fault, according to Princess Maria. And so one wonders if his children will revert back to being like Papa Rostov. Possible. Meanwhile, Natasha, I love this little sentence, in the opinion of most people, to her other shortcomings, or qualities, in Pierre's (laughs) opinion, slovenliness, letting herself go, Natasha had also added stinginess. (laughs) So there's the pendulum swinging for her. Oh my goodness. Rather than her father's excess, now she's stingy with the funds. (laughs) It's great stuff, man. I think it's all just very true. Maybe that's Tolstoy's greatest strength, is he's aware enough and prescient enough about the human condition and all of its little teeny tiny pieces that everything he says is true with a capital T. This is how humanity goes. And uh, I think it's comforting to look in a mirror and see yourself in that. Yeah. They're also all safe though. Like you were saying that Maria sees that Nikolai is doing this. I loved, there was a section, let's see if I can find it in their conversation where they completely miscommunicate and it's totally how it goes. It's when Nikolai is saying, is it for my own pleasure that I'm in the office and tending to business from morning till night? No, I know that I must work to comfort my mother, to pay you back, and not leave the children as poor as I was. Countess Maria wanted to tell him that man does not live by bread alone, that he ascribed too much importance to this business, but she knew it was unnecessary and useless to say it. She only took his hand and kissed it. He accepted this gesture of his wife's as an approval and confirmation of his thoughts. And after some silent reflection, went on thinking aloud. (laughs) 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 So she sees him and loves him, even though he takes that as 
approval of what he's thinking. <laughs> well, and that's the, the idea of seeing is also written into this passage really heavily. And I think there's a, if I'm, if I can editorialize a little bit, there is a difference in the male and female perspectives of seeing, right? Because. Mm. Do you mean seeing as synonymous with understanding? Yes, exactly. Uh, Maria sees him in this moment and he takes it as affirmation, which is what she intended it to be. Not affirmation of his ideas, but affirmation <laughs> of himself. Right. Right. But he takes his affirmation of his ideas. Um, conversely, Pierre doesn't see Natasha in exactly the way that that she might want him to, right? In the conversation that they have in their bedroom, he's still on about his intellectual what's-its, <laughs> and she's trying to right. tell him about the children. But we're told in an earlier passage when they're all sitting in the drawing room that the kids are laughing in the other room, and it's this beautiful music, as Pierre calls it, and he exchanges glances with Nikolai and Princess Maria across the room, and then in an aside, Tolstoy says, because he was always looking at Natasha, or he always saw Natasha. So he, she is ever-present in his mind whether he is expressly in the moment paying attention to her to her or not. So Tolstoy is telling us, hey, men and women are looking at each other all the time. They're just doing it in different ways, and sometimes they talk past each other. They're speaking different languages. I loved the way that he emphasized, though, that that difference is almost, he almost comes out and says that difference in the way that they see each other is based in emotional relation rather than rational. Yes. And if they were going to be rational, if I were to write down a conversation that was very obviously clear in the delineation of its points, they would be going towards an argument. And instead, if it stays in this emotional realm where the woman is being a woman and thinking of her womanly things and the man is being a man and thinking of his manly things and they're seeing each other, but not speaking the same language, <laughs> this is where everything's going well. That's so true. Isn't that so that funny? That is uh, true is what that is. I've never thought of that before, but it was beautifully put. I really liked it. I like it. it too. I also loved the way that he compared the two married couples' judgment of each other's marriages <laughs> and the way that they were relating. Like Nikolai says, I'm, I was having this fight with Pierre and I wish that you had been there, he says. Because Mario's Maria. the intelligent one of the two. <laughs> right. Well, I wish I had yeah, some I backup in this that. conversation. I mostly thought that he meant I watched Natasha agree with Pierre and use his own words. She disagrees with him when he isn't there, but when it comes to an argument, she'll just spout his words back at me. And he's annoyed about that. And Tolstoy says, Nikolai added, yielding to that irresistible impulse that makes us judge the nearest and dearest people. Nikolai forgot <laughs> that what he was saying about Natasha could be said word for word about <laughs> himself in relation to his wife. But what Princess Maria says is, I agree with you. If I had been there, I would have done that for you too. And we're glad. It's beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's great stuff. I don't know. I just liked it. The other thing I think it's interesting about the relationships between men and women in these passages is that it isn't that they're incapable of speaking each other's language. It's just that they don't, usually. <laughs> what do you think of the fact that there's a just a moment when Nikolai and Pierre are at each other's throats in the in the sitting room? Nikolai says as an aside, Pierre, you're my best friend. But I think that yeah. you're wrong yeah. about all these things. And that's like, we really haven't seen interactions between Pierre and Nikolai this whole novel. They, they haven't had much to do with each other. And now they're best friends. So what are the, we don't get to see much of the dynamics of that relationship. But what do you guys think that's like? Well, I, I, I have some <laughs> well, suspicions. I think it's probably volatile <laughs> like this. Yeah, I have some suspicions because, okay, so we know what, what Tolstoy is telling us about men, which is that whether it's silly or not, they are concerned with the fate of the nation and believe themselves to be integral to its health, right? But these two men are doing that in completely different ways. Yeah. And they're both equally silly, I think. Pierre thinks of himself as the intellectual spark that lit the flame. 
which is probably foolish in a country with so many millions of people. And Nikolai thinks of himself as as essential to the government's authority being maintained and can, can see a world in which the guy that's now leading the Russian government calls him personally to head the brigade that will defend the government against its insurgents. Also ridiculous, totally ridiculous, different in tone, different in kind, but exactly the same in terms of the way they look at themselves. What do you guys think of the scene, the end of the scene between Nikolai and Maria, where Nikolai worships her like an icon because of the way that Tolstoy writes the sentence? Yeah. Do you guys remember that Mm, passage? I was was sort of wondering about that myself. I didn't want to pile on to Princess Maria here at the end. No, I just think... Given couching it in our approval of how good their marriage sounds and how their communication is really lovely, and she understands him, but she also believes in that silly womanly way that he'll never really understand her because she's different and you know deeper maybe. Right. Like she thinks that <laughs> she actually thinks that out loud. He'll never understand her. She's kind of above him, and you know <laughs> he looks at her and Tolstoy says, "My God." What will become of us if she dies? As it seems to me, she will when she has such a face, (laughs) he thought. And standing in front of the icon, he began to recite the evening prayers. And obviously, I think there actually is an icon in the room and they're doing their evening prayers together. But because of the sentence structure, it really does seem like Nikolai is looking at Princess Maria as if she were an icon and worshiping her in some ways. And I thought that was thought provoking and I wanted to know what you thought of it. I, I see it being an integral part of the themes that we're talking about, right? The the marriage relationship or relationship where people are icons to the greatest meaning to God, perhaps. We've come, love is God, right? Andre said before. But I also see, I also see the problems with it and I don't necessarily love. Maybe it's maybe it's a personality thing. I don't love the way that Princess Maria does it. I don't either. Well, I, I yeah, I appreciated Nikolai's thought about her journal. He says maybe it needn't be done so pedantically. Maybe it needn't be done at all. <laughs> thought Nikolai. But this tireless, eternal inner effort aimed only at the moral good of the children. This he admired. I think I agree with each and every part of what he just said. There are things to be admired about her, but that might be pedantic the way she does it. It might not be necessary. I think she's thinking really, really hard and maybe can take a chill pill. But the the impulse is a good one. It's to be admired. And I think that his thought that what if she died? Like, I think that's meant to be good, too, that they're necessary to one another to balance yeah. each other out. It. I mean, Maria absolutely needs Nikolai, who is completely an emotional Rostov because she is so, so Maria. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I think, (laughs) yes, again, not to beat a dead horse, but it does look like marriage and family are operating on the two of them in exactly the way that they're supposed to do. Um, Nikolai is being, is being calmed down and convicted of his, of his hot headedness and is called up to a standard of operation that by his wife and by his children that he couldn't reach otherwise. In the same way, the thing that's bothered us about Princess Maria all along is her obsession with her own personal holiness. Which she's, and now yeah. she's thinking about her kids instead, yes. which I think is progress, man. She's being drawn out of herself into something that is more real. 
But she's also, I, w- I was going to put it in a negative light, that she has transferred thoughts of her own holiness to those of her children, but they're yeah. still having to do with their own holiness. So even though it's yeah. absolutely horrifying, I think it's necessary when Nikolai looks at the little tiny baby and says, ah, a piece of meat. Yes, totally. <laughs> like, I know that's <laughs> shocking. He loves his kids, but only when they get to about one year old. because It yes. balances out her, her worship of their children, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I I hesitate to to leave our last character oriented section of War and Peace. I wish we could dwell here forever, and maybe I wish we could just not read the next part and call it good. But we won't do that. We will indeed continue reading on into part two of this epilogue, and I think I want to leave you all with a quick reading of the funniest line in this whole section. We've already mentioned it once, but there's not any reason not to mention it again. It's the piece of meat section. Here we go. How sweet he is, said Countess Maria, looking at the baby. This is Natasha and Pierre's baby. And playing with him. This is what I don't understand, Nicholas. She turned to her husband. How is it you don't understand the charm of these charming little miracles? I just don't. I can't, said Nikolai, looking at the baby with a cold gaze. A piece of meat. Let's go, Pierre. Yet the main thing is, he's such an affectionate father, said Countess Maria, to justify her husband. But only when they're a year old or so. No, Pierre's an excellent nanny, said Natasha. He says his hand was just made to fit a baby's bottom. Look. Well, not only for that, said Pierre, <laughs> laughing suddenly, oh shifting the baby and handing him to the nanny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, With that lighthearted, sparkly-eyed romp into the raunch, <laughs> we will let our characters go off into the sunset. Thank you, Tolstoy, for such a wonderful time. And we will see all of you next time around for the first five chapters of epilogue part two. Until then, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.